HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. One of the coolest rewards of being a James Beard um, recipient is being able to vote. You can choose the next generation of winners, and it's just really, it's very exciting to see those names and so many of the people you know. You've tasted their food, and you're so proud to see them on that list. Sometimes you're rooting for all of them. You know, the Best Chef Southeast category is so hard for me because I'm friends with everybody on it. You just heard Chef Steven Satterfield, executive chef and co-owner of Miller Union in Atlanta. Award season is here, and this week on Meet and 3, we're taking a long, hard look at recognition and accolades in the food world. We discover that all that glitters isn't gold. Next month, the James Beard Foundation will announce a new batch of restaurant and chef winners in Chicago at a ceremony hosted by actor Jesse Tyler Ferguson. As the food world braces for one of its biggest nights, we're reflecting on the conversation we had with Satterfield at Charleston Wine and Food last month. Hey, y'all. We asked Stephen to reflect on how winning the award for Best Chef Southeast affected him and his restaurant. I won the James Beard Award in 2017, and we've been, a, we've been very busy ever since. And sometimes I think people feel like they're, if they've never been before, they come with these like unrealistic expectations, and they feel like it's going to be a life-changing meal. And I remember I read a review from a customer, and they were like, I'd heard so much about this place, and I ordered the sautéed greens, and it was just a bowl of sautéed greens. And I was like, yeah, that's what they're supposed to be. That's what it said on the and menu. I, so I changed it on the menu, menu to say simple sautéed greens. So there's no, like, there's no pretense to it, whatever. Like, it's definitely going to be simple, and I'm telling you in advance. So you won't be disappointed. <laughs> It is a blessing and a curse, of course. I mean, to win the Beard Award is like every chef's dream in America. Um, but yeah, you get unexpectedly busy. We we were like always coming from behind that first year, like trying to. We just couldn't keep up with the business, and we were. And I, I talked to a couple of winners before me, and I was like, "Y'all, what is happening? Has this happened to you?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, you're never gonna have time." to test recipes anymore you're just gonna have to like figure it out on the fly and I was like oh my god this is like not what I asked for but then you just start realizing well how can we work smarter and then you you just have to hire a couple more people to adjust to the new normal and then you get you know you just have to start delegating more and figuring out ways to make it all work and so we we've been doing that kind of like growing through some growing pains as we enter into our 10th year of business so it's pretty exciting to see that we still continue to grow and change and respond to our needs. 
We asked Stephen if he has any advice to share with this year's batch of award winners as they enter the ranks of culinary superstars. I mean, it's tough. I think everybody responds to it differently. Like, I don't like to write a speech. I prefer to just be spontaneous. Um, I think some people really need to do that because you get so jittery and like, it's so nerve wracking when they, when you get down to your category and it's like five names and all your names come up on the screen. You don't know which one they're going to call. Nobody knows except for the committee. You know, it's just, a, it's just, it's really like intense. And I was up, up there five times, five years in a row, not knowing if I was ever going to win. So um, that la- the moment I actually won, I was in such shock because I'd gotten so used to losing. I didn't think it was going to happen. Hear more of Stephen Satterfield's sage advice on episode 229 of Heritage Radio Network on tour. For the next story about award season, we turn to Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears on HRN. He recently welcomed Matt and Ted Lee, a.k.a. the Lee Brothers, to talk about their brand new book, Hotbox, Inside Catering, the World's Riskiest Business. The siblings were inspired to explore the world of high-volume catering after watching a team of catering chefs help execute Chef Steven Satterfield's dinner at the James Beard House. These chefs worked like mercenaries, moving seamlessly from one event to the next. The Lees decided they would embed themselves in the world of catering, spending four years working at firms in New York City. Their research culminated in Hotbox, which brings to light a head-scratching irony. There is no recognition for catering chefs within the James Beard Awards, yet James Beard himself was a catering chef. Here's Harry asking Matt and Ted their thoughts on that. I mean, do you think that there is a place in the Beard Awards for this sort of aspect of catering and cooking and large-scale food? Absolutely. Unquestionably. We're, yeah. we're a little bit confused by why it doesn't already exist, a catering sure. category. Right. Because if you think about it, like every event at the Beard House is essentially an off-premise event yeah. for, a cat- for, for the restaurant. Their business yeah. model is built on catering. Right. Whether it's the dinners, like the one that Stephen did at the house where it's a chef out of his or her comfort zone, you know, doing an off-premise event or at the awards ceremony where they've got stations set up around the room for that reception afterwards. Sure. And um, all that uh, and great performances, which is a big catering yeah. firm in New York, usually facilitates all those events that the Beard House does. So they're a partner in those events to make the offsite logistics happen. Sure, because they're regardless so good at it. Of, <laughs> right, because they're good at it and they know how it works and they can do the work with the chef who may not have experienced an off-premise event on that level right. to, it to may make it happen. It may expose a class, an old class distinction mm. that, that once existed Um of course, James Beard himself was a caterer, right. mostly of hors d'oeuvres <laughs> yeah. back in the 1950s. But anyhow, uh, we're hopeful that we're beyond that and yeah. that the time is right. Well, and, and when you look at sort of like the, you know, one of the things that I've often thought about is like access to the food, right? And so mm-hmm. if you have a place as great as it is, you know, you have like Blanca here at Roberta's, mm-hmm. which is an incredible restaurant. It has 12 seats and it's not even open every night, right? right. And so you look at like one 1,000 person dinner, they've served more people than Blanca will serve in like three years. <laughs> one night. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, experientially, and, there's more people and, who experience right. that. Yeah. It's and a popular it's, culture in yeah. a way. And it's just fascinating that both things, both of those experiences are happening on the same night in the same city. Yeah. Incredible. We're going to take a short break. Next up, Kat Johnson examines an aspect of restaurant awards ratings that is shrouded in secrecy. 
the mysterious figures in charge of choosing who wins and who loses. When it comes to restaurant awards, there's no accounting for taste. And if you stop to think about that, it's a little bit absurd. How can we bestow honors on certain restaurants and chefs over others when choosing where to eat is all about personal preference? Now, I realize that awards can be helpful indicators to use when trying to get to know a city's dining scene or pick the right spot for that special occasion dinner. But who picks the winners? Is it more important for judges to be anonymous in the interest of impartiality? Or would we be better served by knowing who makes the calls? In the case of the James Beard Awards, we know who sits on the restaurant and chef committee, but the full list of voters is not public. Even further cloaked in anonymity is the Michelin Guide. In 2017, Food & Wine published an anonymous interview with a Michelin inspector, calling them, quote, kind of like the secret service of the culinary world. To get a better understanding of how inspectors interact with the restaurants they score, I turned to a friend of mine who knows a thing or two about the Michelin star scale. My name is Joshua Plunkett. Um, I used to work at a small one-star restaurant in Brooklyn called Luxus. And I worked at a two-star restaurant in New York called Aterra. And also now I work at Cezanne in San Francisco, which has three stars. For some background, Michelin guides are restaurant guidebooks published by, you guessed it, the French tire company Michelin. Their original purpose was to entice the French to drive more and further to eat at standout restaurants. More driving meant more tires sold. That mission to get people to travel for food is still visible in the criteria for stars. One star is considered very good, two stars are worth a detour, and three stars are worth a special journey. I think for the guests, there's the overall experience can differ greatly from a one star to a three star. It's not like fixed or anything, but I mean, the, the attentiveness of the service and the amount of guests in the room probably varies from one to three star. Three Michelin star restaurants typically serve a tasting menu costing upwards of $200 per person. They're the type of places that would be considered special occasion meals for most. But Michelin inspectors, in the interest of ensuring consistency, visit more than just once or twice. And I mean, Michelin might come, you know, four, five, six times, who knows, to check out consistency and experiences. I'll let you in on a not-so-secret secret. If you're dining at a three Michelin-starred restaurant, say, 11 Madison Park or the French Laundry, the front of house staff is doing their research on you as a guest. So the likelihood of a Michelin inspector dining at a three-star caliber restaurant four plus times a year and not being detected is pretty low. And according to Josh, inspectors don't seem too concerned about that fact. I mean, based on my experience, nowadays they're a little more visible. They still do anonymous visits, but I mean, I've been working restaurants where they have announced themselves afterwards or talked to the chef. This trend seems to mirror the direction of restaurant criticism, where some critics used to go out in elaborate disguises and even put on fake accents. Newer ones embrace their visibility. Recently, Soleil Ho and Tahal Rao have become critics at major publications despite their headshots being available through a quick Google search. Their anonymity was off the table from the get-go, but that hasn't slowed either of them down. But even with a bit of increased transparency at Michelin, Josh believes there's still value in having anonymous inspectors. 
If a restaurant staff becomes aware that Michelin is in the house, they could divert more of their attention to the inspector at the risk of neglecting other guests. But I mean, it's important that the inspectors are anonymous because they, they want to try and adjudicate the restaurant on a basis where like the restaurant doesn't know who they are so that they are a random person or the normal person. So what do you think? Should critics, judges, and inspectors strive for complete anonymity? Or should they be known to the restaurants they're scrutinizing and diners they seek to influence? Send us your opinions at info at meetin3.nyc. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Meet in Three. As we've heard so far, Awards are complicated. There are sometimes costs involved in winning them, they're not always 100% inclusive, and it's not always clear who picks the winners or why. Well, for our final story this week, things get even more complicated. Pauline Munch brings us a story about a Nobel Prize winner whose work helped millions of people, but wasn't without some major drawbacks. Yes, this is really a rap about a man named Norman Borlaug. But what did he do to deserve this musical celebration? In 1970, he won the Nobel Peace Prize to recognize his work as an agricultural scientist. During his career, Norman had focused on the issue of world hunger and had developed a way to breed a type of high-yield cereal. Since there's no Nobel Prize given for food and agriculture, this was pretty groundbreaking. But 50 years down the road, Norman and his award remain controversial. Norman Borlaug was a brilliant scientist and innovator, and there's no doubt that in the short term, in the face of global hunger and famine, his research on high-yield crops saved lives. But the issue is that his approach, which was then embraced by industry and kicked off the Green Revolution, it relied on growing crops in monocultures with heavy inputs of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. This is Lisa Held, who hosts The Farm Report on HRN. She notes how Norman and his impact helped launch the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was a transfer of agricultural research and technology from the 1950s to 60s. It aimed to improve food security in low-income nations and take over traditional farming methods. This meant not only more high-yield crops, but also more fertilizers, agrochemicals, and irrigation. But these new technologies had long-term effects. 
These kinds of systems destroy soil, pollute waterways, poison workers. In the long term, the peasant farmers who Borlaug wanted to help didn't benefit. Instead, corporations that sell genetically modified seeds and the herbicides that accompany them got bigger and richer, while rural communities that once grew their own food on small farms were destroyed, creating a whole new generation of low-wage workers facing food insecurity. But others might argue against this point. In the short term, some incredible gains were made to alleviate hunger. For example, according to the FAO, China increased its cereal output by 91 million tons in 1961 to 163 million tons by 1971. The approach of the Green Revolution is totally extractive, and it doesn't take into account the impact agriculture has on the future of the planet. So, yes, we have to feed the world's growing population, and we need so much scientific innovation to do so, but there won't be a world for that population to live in if we do it in a way that destroys the environment. Norman wasn't blind to these issues. During his Nobel lecture in 1970, he said the Green Revolution was, quote, a change in the right direction, but has not transformed the world into a utopia. He acknowledged its temporary nature and warned of the risks we still face with extreme population growth. And Lisa, she thinks it's time to shift gears and look to new horizons and new innovations. At last year's Young Farmer Conference, I heard two different young, innovative farmers say they want their work to inspire or kick off a second green revolution, or a new green revolution that counters the first one. One based on concepts like regenerative organic agriculture and agroecology, systems that do increase yields, but by working in concert with natural systems rather than via chemical inputs, and that build healthy soil that produces more nutritious food and sequesters carbon. And maybe more importantly, those systems prioritize farmer and worker welfare to empower people with the resources they need to feed themselves and their communities. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Pauline Munch, Lisa Held, and Harry Rosenblum. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. We'll leave you this week with more of the Norman Borlaug rap performed by Rohan Prakash, lyrics by MC Tractor, produced by DJ Red, additional vocals by Lucky Egnan and Destiny Caldwell, and background music by DJ Cadet. No, 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 no.